Isn't that a precious truth? When troubles round me swell, when fears and dangers throng, sometimes it feels that way. It's not just one, but they're just attacking you. Securely I will dwell in his pavilion strong. Within the shelter of God's tent, he hides me till the storm is spent. It's a wonderful song for us to have been introduced to this month. Thank you for your singing this morning. It's a blessing to be together. You turn your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians, towards the end of your Bible. Anytime you move to a new area, you might know what this is like. You spend the first couple months making all sorts of new connections with where you are, what you're close to, how to get around, if you're me, where the closest Chick-fil-A is, or Raising Cane's, you find out that it's always too close. And uh, we have the privilege of seeing maps that can really help you see where things are in relationship to each other. But there's no substitute for driving around, driving a route yourself, and having to find your way around with just some directional sense and some awareness, using some of those things. Maybe if you're a teenager, maybe if you're a teenager, uh, you know what this is like, uh, where all of a sudden you start getting better at directions as you start to have to drive on your own. So after uh, four years of living here, It just recently clicked in my brain, kind of a new way that some of these uh, east-west roads that we have in this area are are arranged north to south in a way that was helpful to me. You know, there's there's Graham Road, and then there's 59, which is mostly east-west, and then there's, uh, let me get it from your perspective, there's North River Road out this way towards Ken, and then there's Monroe Falls Avenue on this side of the river, and then there's North Moreland, and then there's Howe, and it just all kind of made sense when I was driving around. They're all roughly parallel. They're all connected, you know, maybe on the one side to to Hudson Road, Bailey, down this way, and 91, they go north-south. It just all made sense to me in a new way as I matched my experience in uh, wherever that was, Monroe Falls, to what I had seen on the whole picture of the map in my brain. What I want to do this morning is to give us a a sense of the whole letter of 2 Thessalonians in one sitting. It's kind of a big word, an interesting word. Don't let that intimidate you. This is just uh, the name of a city that uh, existed in the time of the Bible, Thessalonica, over in uh, the Greco-Roman world in Asia Minor, the area of Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And I want to give us a sense today that if Paul wrote a letter to our church, if we were receiving this kind of letter, because that's all it is, it's in the Bible, it's part of a longer library, the Bible is, this letter is, but it was just one letter, it came in the mail to one church at a point in time, and if we were to get this kind of thing tailored to our setting, to our challenges, what kind of sense would it make to us? If somebody stood up here and said, the Apostle Paul wrote this to us, and he read it, everything he says would make sense, we would get it, we were living it. I hope to give you the perspective of the whole map so that when we're later on driving through the letter of 2 Thessalonians, some of the things in the text will make a little bit more sense to us. If you've been with us for some time, uh, I've had opportunity to, or we've had opportunity to work through the letter of the 1 Thessalonians, the first letter Paul wrote to this church. Now this is a second. And this letter is taken up with how a church glorifies God under pressure from sin. It's no mystery to you, perhaps, that God intends to get glory from his people. God deserves glory. We can't steal his glory. He has glory in himself, but he deserves to have it ascribed to him. But he's going to get glory from his people, but it's not lost to him that we live in a sinful world. God knows that we're going to have challenges in this life. And some people, maybe you have asked, why doesn't God just take us out of this world once he saves us? Why does he leave us here? Well, this letter 
gives us some answers to that question. If you're familiar with uh, the New Testament, I might use some terms that may leave some holes in your understanding, but I'll try to give us some background. The Apostle Paul was a very influential man. He was a Jew who had been raised as a strict Jew. He was a Pharisee. He had persecuted Christians early in his life. God quite miraculously saved him on this road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus confronted him from heaven. A light shone around him, and the Lord Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul didn't realize, he later came to be known as Paul, that he was actually opposed to the God that he thought he was serving by persecuting the church. But the Lord saved him, and he became a great minister of the gospel to the churches in that day. And much of the New Testament is written by this man as he's writing to people with problems. He's writing to churches who have things come up. Every church does. But he had gone to this particular city called Thessalonica, been there for a few weeks, seen some people converted in that place. He had formed a church together. It was newly established. And then he got chased out of town. There was a mob that had formed. There were other Jews who lived in this Roman city who did not like Paul, who did not like the gospel. So they persecuted. They were probably going to kill him if they could get it their hands on. So they chased him out of town. And now Paul is leaving these brand new Christians behind with very little footing in the truth. So in the next city, he scribbles down a letter, which we know as First Thessalonians, and says, here's what you need to do. Everything that I taught you is true. Even if I'm not there anymore, don't believe what people are saying, because when you were converted, remember what God had really done. God set you on this path of spiritual growth, and that's the one you need to stay on. Because you need to grow strong if you're going to resist all of this pressure that's still there. These people lived there. All of those same people, as we'll see, who persecuted Paul, they were still neighbors. They couldn't get away from him. They had moms and dads and businesses to take care of. They couldn't leave like Paul did. So what are they going to do? Well, they need to grow. But then a few months later, it seems, Paul hears about this church. He gets a report, and he hears they are growing. And this thrills his soul. Praise the Lord. He knows that they're taking steps down the path that they need to if they're going to survive. But he hears with this report that there are a few serious problems, and one in particular that you'll see kind of woven throughout the whole letter. And there's three problems. You could, as you look through the letter, you see there's three chapters. Those aren't, Paul didn't write chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. It was just a letter. But as we see it in our Bible, you... It's a kind of an intuitive breaking there for us. Chapter one, you're reading about the problem of persecution, and the persecution's intense. But chapter two, this is the main problem he's writing about. There's false teaching afoot, and it's destabilizing to them. It's unsettling to them. They're new Christians. But then in chapter three, as we'll see, there's, there's some disorder among them in their, in their church, some people aren't working like they should, and it's discouraging to the group. And Paul's writing another letter a couple months after the first one, trying to set some of those right. And maybe you'd ask, okay, how does a letter from 2,000 years ago make any difference in our lives today? Well, the message that really emerges, I think, from this letter as he addresses these problems is that any church glorifies God as it overcomes sin's challenges by God's grace. A church glorifies God as it overcomes sin's challenges by God's grace. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit each part of that, and we're going to develop this this morning. Sin presents challenges to every church that every church has to overcome by God's grace. We're going to talk about grace this morning. And the result of doing so is spiritual fruit, evidence in your life, change in the life of that church that honors God and testifies to the world of God's enabling and transforming grace. So let's unfold this idea this morning that we glorify God as a church as we encounter sin's challenges by God's grace. First, sin presents challenges to every church. And I want you to see that from their situation and then we'll kind of zoom out to what that might look like at other places and other times. These problems here in this letter, they're specific to this church, but they're really just 
representative. Sin brings up problems for all of us. It could be, you know, maybe one church really experiences suffering in an unusual way or, or sickness, or maybe it's internal and a church is just plagued by leadership problems or financial constraints or divisiveness or just kind of spiritual darkness all around. If you go to different places around the world, you see that even just the place that you live can present you with challenges. And that gives you an idea. What do we face? Maybe just broadly speaking in America, we face worldliness. What were the specific problems of this church? I think you could see from their example that the pressure of persecution challenges a church. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Right at the very beginning of his letter, Paul writes, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. So what, what is he saying right in the headline of this letter? I'm praising God because I heard that you guys are growing while you're being persecuted, while your faith is being opposed. And I just want to give you a, a sense of what they might have been facing. If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 with me, this is the account of when Paul was chased out of this city. This is a little bit of a historical background. <clears throat> You can keep your finger in 2 Thessalonians, but Acts chapter 17. I just want to paint a picture for us of what kind of things they may have been facing, because it's the same people. It's just a couple months after this happened that Paul is writing. Uh, Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis, this is Paul and his group, in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, this city, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he's talking to Jews who he shares a lot of background with, but they're, they, they need taught the truth about Jesus. And he's going to their, you know, we've got a synagogue over here in Fairlawn. He's going to, he's going to their synagogue and teaching them this. Explaining verse three and giving evidence that the Christ, the Messiah, had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ or the Messiah. The Messiah of, this, of the Jews, his name is Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm showing you from the Bible that he had to suffer. And look, this Jesus, he died on a cross. He rose again. It's him. He's the Messiah. Believe in him. Is what Paul is doing. Verse four. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. What is this? This is the church at Thessalonica. This is who's getting Paul's letter. But here's the problem, verse 5. The Jews, this is Jews who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. That's Paul and Silas. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Okay, so this is a scene of... I mean, this, can you imagine this happening <laughs> on a normal Tuesday afternoon? Somebody busts down your door and they drag you out. But look, these people weren't done. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, nearby city. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Paul wasn't intimidated. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So the Jews here, God was obviously doing something in their heart because they were willing to look at their Bible, Genesis through Malachi, and say, okay, is Paul right? Did the Messiah have to suffer? They didn't persecute Paul there. 
Therefore, they're looking at the scriptures, verse 12, many of them believed, along with a number of the prominent Greek women and men. But verse 13, look. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Do these guys have a job? Like, what's their problem? Just go work. Leave me alone. So what, what is going on in Thessalonica? After Paul leaves, these guys go back. They've still got, you know, they're metal workers, they're woodworkers, they're builders, you know, they're the city treasurer, all this stuff. They work there. These Jews, they're jealous. Have you ever seen somebody act out of jealousy? Have people murdered out of jealousy? They've got jealousy in their hearts. They do not want Christians to gain influence in this city. I like having influence in this city. They're unprincipled. You see, they went and found wicked men in the marketplace. These are Jews. They know better. They shouldn't put themselves in league with these rabble rousers, but they go down there. They know who to light a fire under. And they're going to go start one. They're brutal. They're angry. They're violent. They beat down Jason's door and dragged him into the city square. They've got violence in their hearts. These men are fools. They're slanderous. They take them downtown. What do they say? Acts 17. Jason has welcomed these rabble rousers, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Remember, this is Rome. This is under the policy of emperor worship. Okay, It's not just they're being unlawful. They're betraying the king god, Caesar, which is false. They mix it with truth, though, saying that there is another King Jesus. That's true. They probably were saying that. But this is slander. They're, they don't care about the truth. They care about getting their way. They basically criminalized hospitality, welcoming Christians into your home. They've basically criminalized evangelization. They're corrupt. Did you notice that detail? They stirred up, verse 8, the crowd and the city authorities. They've got the local government in their back pocket, they know, how to, they know how to start a riot, right? They know how to get their way. This is not, this isn't just, well, it's, it's religious intolerance, right? They're happy for people to worship Rome. They're happy for people to worship the emperor. They're happy for the, the Greek philosophers to worship their ideas. You know, we're Jews. We're going to pretend to worship the true God. But if you're a Christian, watch out. This isn't, I'm trying to paint this picture for us because I don't think we can, we're even close to experiencing this kind of thing in our country. Because even when people are persecuted and face opposition, we have what we talk about in our country, this history of, of Judeo-Christian values, that law is based on truth and what's right and wrong. And you see people trying to overturn that in our country. But we're coming from that. And we're not going to be anywhere close to this because this is pagan Rome. They don't have that history there. And all these people care about, and they're getting away with it, is mob rule. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about what's right. They care about getting their way. These are the kind of people that these Christians are being opposed by. If you want maybe a modern-day illustration, think about the kind of opposition that's going to come against a convert to Christianity in a Muslim country where the whole society is built on the rule of Islam. There's going to be great suspicion to someone trying to overturn that and to, to escape that. And there's going to be intense social pressure against that person, even if they're not beating down your door and taking away your kids or anything like that. That may happen, but there's just there's pressure. They're trying to catch Christians in the act of doing the things they can get them for. Now, what's the challenge? What's the challenge here to a Christian? It's that people would wilt. This is a lot of pressure. We don't face this. We don't really understand this. But people who are experiencing this, it's, it's intense. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, as he tells the parable of the soils, I think you can get some insight into what he's talking about here. When he uses this very word, Matthew chapter 13, verse 21, he says, the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is what Paul's writing about, affliction and persecution. And he doesn't want to see these people fall away. He knows that he could have sown the word on hearts that are this kind of soil. So he's writing back to them, trying to pound up the soil so that they don't fall away because he knows the kind of people who almost killed him are still there. The pressure of persecution challenges a church. Persecution, you could say it's, it's sinful. It's opposition to the gospel. And that's coming from outside. That challenges this church. Maybe not our church and certainly not in the same way. But it's certainly the case for this church. You can turn back to 2 Thessalonians. But Paul turns next to another challenge facing this church. And this one's actually coming from inside. If you turn ahead to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, you see he's definitely talking about something else. He makes a transition in his letter. And it's something doctrinal. It's something about truth. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What is he talking about? He's talking about the end times. He's talking about Christ's return. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you. And then he talks about how you'll know when it's about to come. So part of what Paul is hearing a report of from this church is that someone has come into the church and used what knowledge they have about Jesus Christ coming back to the earth. Because even the Christians are saying, Jesus is alive, he's in heaven. Look at all the stuff he's doing. It's because Jesus is alive in heaven. He's the Messiah. But he's coming again. Somebody had some knowledge of that, and they came into this church and they were saying things like, Christ came back, and you're still here. You must not be saved. Paul must have been telling you a lie about how to get to heaven. By grace, through faith, nonsense. Look at what the law has to say. Here, keep this law. Don't do this. Don't do this. Can you imagine? Maybe it was just a simple error in their understanding. Maybe it was malice. Maybe they were trying to manipulate people. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't even seem to know exactly where this is coming from, but it's an error. It's a lie. And maybe you'd say, well, if somebody came in saying that, we would, we would probably kindly show them the front steps, right? Like, the, how does that happen? How would they so easily be deceived? Well, realize how Paul talks about Christ's return. I even said the phrase, the end times. Jesus probably lived in the first uh, two, three decades of the first century. AD. Paul's writing maybe 20 years after that. So now, if you can set aside for a second the 2,000 years that have transpired since then, the way that Paul is talking about Christ's return is it's imminent. It's going to happen. It's maybe going to happen in my lifetime. This is how everybody's thinking about it. They don't realize that there's going to be this huge, now we know, two millennia delay. So he's, he's talking about it like it's imminent. So maybe you'd say, is this really relevant to us then? Well, think about the kind of stability that comes when you know some of these truths. And now you have the whole Bible, right? <laughs> Part of the reason we have stability on this is because people face this difficulty and they got truth to treat that difficulty. And now we've had it for thousands of years. Okay. So the, the challenges coming to us are different than the ones that they had. They didn't have all of, they didn't have this much of the Bible. They had this much. And a lot of it they weren't familiar with because they were new Christians. And of course, the devil's never done. He's never finished with his work. Paul even told the elders in Ephesus not long after he was in Thessalonica, savage wolves will come among you. They're trying to get sheep. That's what wolves do. That's what the devil does. And you see this devilish tactic really playing out all the time. If you can't intimidate someone, infiltrate. Right? That's what the pressure is. It's intimidation but it's not working. They're growing. So let's infiltrate. The devil sends someone who conveniently has some error in their theology. And sometimes that's the hardest enemy to fight, isn't it? The one from inside. 
So maybe it's not Christ's return for us. Maybe imagine someone coming in, maybe, maybe not a member, maybe, but someone who maybe comes for a little while, gains some familiarity, and starts mentioning things like faith healings or, or a higher life or a second blessing of the spirit or hearing from God or things like this. That's unsettling, isn't it? And those are the kinds of things that lead away from sound doctrine. This is exactly what the New Testament talks about. This is how wolves act. They don't submit themselves to accountability. They, they gain influence. They try to teach others. And really, all the while, they're acting under impulses either that they don't understand or that they do know. And they're just engaging maliciously to try to unsettle people, to try to lead them away. And the challenge here is that people would waver. Is that really true? And they're, they're starting to question what their pastor is teaching and what the Bible says, what seems so clear to them. What does Ephesians 4 say? You need to become mature so that you wouldn't be blown about by every wind of doctrine, right? This is a wind of doctrine that has come into their church and has blown them around because they're new Christians. And the danger there, of course, is that they would apostatize altogether, that they would show themselves not even to have believed because they've just been blown about and then they just go and fall into the ditch. That's what Paul describes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Point is, sin presents every church with difficulties. In Thessalonica, they were meeting pressure and persecution and they were growing. But Paul is definitely concerned about this distress that is coming to them by this deceiver. But finally, the third challenge, I believe, is there's the challenge of discouragement at disobedience that is challenging this church. Look in chapter 3. I think this disobedience, as I've called it, manifests itself in a few ways. If you look in verses 1 through 3, it's resistance to the word that's being preached. Finally, brethren. Pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. So he's praying that God's word would have free course because there's unbelief in the world. People resist the preaching of the word, don't they? But there's also resistance from, it seems, the membership, someone who definitely is part of the church, to apostolic tradition. Look at verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. There's a tradition that Paul set for them, a, an example of working hard for what you have. And he wants to offer them encouragement about it. Verse 13, as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. When you see people who are unruly, who are not doing what they should be doing and what people have taught them to do, they're resisting the tradition of those who are over them. That can be discouraging, can it? If it's going unaddressed. So there's resistance to the word, to tradition, maybe even to correction altogether. Verse 14, look at 2 Thessalonians 3, 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. There's been a lot of correction in this letter about doctrine, about persecution, about working. And if somebody's resisting to that, he gives them a way to correct that. So it may be helpful to think of this church as kind of in the, the church plant phase, if you could call it that. It's newly established. If it's just been in existence for a couple months, you can imagine there's probably not a well-established pastor there. They're probably taking a lot of their cues from, you know, their planting church, which is basically Paul and Silas. <laughs> They're the ones who came in and evangelized them and taught them the doctrine that they needed to know and set them on the right course. And Paul would send people back and try to equip people. That's what the books of First and Second Timothy and Titus are about. Paul is 
setting up elders in those places, but they probably don't have that strong central leader. So it's not hard to imagine the kind of disputes that could come up in a church like this about authority, especially among people who are immature, who are kind of have a lot of bad habits, bad sin habits in their life that God has recently saved them from. You know, who's in charge anyway? Who is this Paul guy I think he is? He just jumped ship, right? Why do you care about my life? It's my business. Get out of here. Butt out, please. And the truth really stands, doesn't it? When a, when a professing Christian persists in known sin or disorderly living, it's disheartening to other Christians in the church. It is. To a spouse, to children, to if you work with other Christians, it's discouraging because they know you're not right. And they know that your life is contrary to your profession. And maybe you'd say, well, the challenge of not working, is that really relevant to us? Well, it could be. I think it's a little more stigmatized in our country. I mean, it, it may be headed that direction, of course, but what form of disobedience might be less stigmatized in our culture? Think about that. Maybe a lack of reconciliation. People live in open conflict with each other all the time. It's not that big of a deal. It's not that great of a sin. You know, who cares? Lack of strict morality. Everybody does it. Everybody does this. Everybody looks at that. Everybody says this, acts this way. It's not as stigmatized. It's easier to give in to that. But what I'm saying to you is that any of us, if any of us refuses to turn from whatever that sin is, that is demoralizing to the body of Christ. It is. It's discouraging. It weighs other people down, especially when it becomes known. So immorality. Immorality is a big one. A lot of people look at pornography. And a lot of people don't stigmatize it. That will discourage God's people. The challenge here is that people would be discouraged from obeying, that they would start to imitate those who are doing evil. This is why we talk about repentance. You must turn from sin and turn to righteousness. The author of to the Hebrews says, watch out, exhort one another daily so that none of you falls short of the grace of God. Really, these are just representative challenges, but ones, even as we talk about them, they're, they're real problems, they're perennial problems, they're problems that churches face today, whether or not it's our church. Persecution, false doctrine, disobedient brothers, sin presents challenges for every church. But as a church comes to recognize what challenges sin brings to them, next, every church has to overcome these challenges. By God's grace. This is what we must do. In each case, Paul makes very clear how this church can overcome. So think back with me. If you can shift back to go through each of these problems, how does Paul direct them to meet these and to overcome them? Well, with persecution, what is it? In each case, it's by God's grace. That's a theme. That's a word that comes up in this letter. As Paul commends them for enduring persecution, their challenge is, of course, unbelief. So what he says is, overcome unbelief by fixing your eyes on Christ. Overcome unbelief by fixing your eyes on Christ. So what does he do? Well, he's praying for grace for them. Uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your great faith is greatly enlarged. And the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance of faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And look down at verse 11. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will 
count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. What is he praying? You're doing the right thing. God, sustain them by your grace. Help them to continue to grow by your grace. He's orienting their thoughts in every way towards Christ. Christ chose you. He's coming again for you. This is an anchor for the soul when persecution comes. I want you to see that this is prayer, prayer for grace, truth about Christ that ministers grace. When there's temptation towards unbelief, towards rejecting the word, towards falling away, fix your eyes on Christ. But the second problem is immaturity and uh, being blown about by false doctrine. Overcome immaturity, Paul says, by clinging to the apostles' doctrine. Remember the challenge here is people deceiving. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. He's dealing with someone who is trying to deceive them. It will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And what is he doing? Look at verse five. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? We're going to get into all the the details of what he's saying. So don't get hung up on who is the man of lawlessness? Who is this? We'll get there. Pray for me. But he's, the point is, he already told them these things, and he's pointing them back to, you remember what I was telling you? You need to go back to what I taught you. This is the apostles' doctrine. This will ground you, and you can measure what people are saying against this because it's true. And is that arrogant for Paul to say? How can he know with such authority that this is true and everybody else is a deceiver? Well, you're getting into the realm of he has some self-awareness that God is speaking through him. God's revelation. This is the doctrine of the inspiration of scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. And he does it through men like Paul. And Paul is aware of this. He knows that it's true. It's binding. It's sure. You can be sure about it. So if deceivers are unsettling to you, leaving you vulnerable to immaturity and even apostasy, cling to the word that you received from the apostles. This is the kind of weight that scripture attaches to itself. Do you believe that? Do you take this as from the mouth of God? Because it is. Paul knew it, and he's pointing people back to it. Point is, doctrine ought to stabilize us. And when I use the word doctrine, think the big teachings of scripture, they bring settledness to a Christian. So if you're, if you're ignorant of these things, it may be that you don't have firm roots in the full breadth of the teaching of Scripture. So take for an example. I'll give you two. If you don't know what the Bible says about the wickedness of the human heart, okay, there's not a dictionary entry on sin in here. But the whole Bible talks about it, except for maybe three chapters. Okay? Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and maybe Revelation 22. Okay? The rest of the Bible talks about sin. So what what does the Bible teach about sin? If you don't understand what the Bible teaches about sin and about God's wrath in turning people over to their lusts, Romans 1, when people sin and they persist in sin and in rejecting God, God gives them over to it and they become insane, don't they? If you don't understand this and you see this playing out in your culture, in our culture, this will be very unsettling to you. Why is this happening? We really are wicked. And rejecting God does produce moral insanity. And things aren't going to keep getting better in the world. But if you don't know that scripture tells you this, you're going you're gonna to be unsettled by this. When people tell you, you know, when you're a baby, you're actually born with a clean slate. That's a lie. It's a lie. They seem very innocent, and they are. And Lord bless them. But we know. Uh, another example. If you don't understand that as a Christian, it will be, it must be through affliction that you enter the kingdom, that you must suffer persecution. If you don't know that, it's going to be disheartening to you and you're going to, you're going to want to give up. But scripture speaks from beginning to end about suffering, doesn't it? Think about Job. 
we lost everything. And why? That was his question. Well, God didn't really give that answer. God gave him himself. But if you don't know what the Bible says about these big things in life that really confront you, you're going you're gonna to be left unstable. So Paul says, overcome immaturity by clinging to the word. So how does this work? Well, when you realize that Jesus is coming again. And the very kinds of days that the Bible describes and that he will rescue his people. And he will eventually conquer all nations and subdue all rebellion and demolish all sin and rule from the earth. That grounds you. When the election winds start coming up again, right? And people show that they're actually looking to a political leader to save them. No, I've got a savior. And he won. He's coming again. Growing in your understanding and belief in the truth leads you to spiritual stability. And why do I call this God overcoming this challenge of deceit by grace? Well, the, the Bible is, Paul refers to it as the word of God's grace. It's called the word of God's grace, Acts 20, 32. We won't turn there. We could spend much time talking about grace. Sometimes we, it's used so many times and we use it so many different ways that we become confused about what it is. It really is this, this really wonderful multifaceted thing. God sanctifies us by grace. He edifies us by grace. He gives us strength to serve and to suffer by his grace. But the point is for our purposes here, this comes through the word of God's grace. Certainly it comes as we pray and approach the throne of grace. But here, Paul is treating false doctrine by pointing the people to the word of God's grace. And that grace is certainly most evident through the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to exalt today because he did come to earth to save sinners. He lived a perfect life that we all should have lived, but we could not from our very conception. We were oriented in on ourselves. This is the depravity of humankind. But Jesus lived a perfect life, met all God's commands. He was perfectly innocent in the eyes of the law, fully righteous, and yet he was executed at the hands of sinful men for sinners. Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And God has made us his ambassadors with this word of reconciliation. So we appeal to you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God through Christ. This is the word of God's grace. That God has made a way for sinful people who are rebels against him, though he creates them and keeps them alive, he made a way for them to be right with him through Jesus alone. You have to turn from your sin. And God calls you through his word today to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus. That's the question. When Jesus comes again and everybody meets God at the judgment, what have you done with Christ? What have you done with your sin? Are you in your sin or are you in Christ? In Christ. Only if you turn from sin and trust in him for the security of your eternal soul. So overcome unbelief by fixing your eyes on Christ and overcome immaturity by clinging to the truth of the word. But Paul addresses a third challenge and offers a third solution. Overcome discouragement by maintaining a pure church. So you remember there are people resisting the word. Paul is praying that the word would have free course. There are people who aren't working. They're living disorderly lives. There are people maybe who don't want to take correction. They're going to say, forget Paul. That's going to be discouraging. So what do you do? Well, you, you purify the fellowship. It's God, God's given us a, a way to do that. Look at verse 13. What's the solution if there's sin, ongoing sin that Christians won't turn from? Verse 14, well, look in verse 12, because Paul does give an exhortation first. If people are living a disorderly lives, disorderly lives, he calls them to, to, to turn from that, to fix that. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. Don't be a freeloader. You need to work for what you have. That's the example Paul set. He acknowledges the potential for discouragement. As for you, brethren, verse 13, don't grow weary of doing good. 
But verse 14, here's the means he gives of dealing with it. If people still won't obey, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. And we don't like shame in our country, right? It seems like every, I don't know, a couple of years, there's a whatever positivity movement. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to destigmatize things that really actually are bad. And I'm not, my point isn't to comment on that, but we don't like the idea of shame. But sin brings shame. It does. You see that from the very beginning. When Adam and Eve sin, what do they do? They realize they were naked and they hid themselves. That's shame. We want to cover. They were guilty. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings fear. Sin brings all sorts of terrible things. Fear, guilt, shame. You see this played out across the whole world. We're a very guilt-oriented culture. We tend to think of sin as I'm guilty before the law. Other places in the world tend to think of I am rejected by God. That's shame. There are places in the world who are very fearful and say, I am under God's wrath and I am subject to, to bad spirits. That's fear. This is, this is the terrible effects of sin the world over. We tend to think of guilt. But in this culture, this is the East. This is the, this is the Middle East that Paul is writing to. He's talking about shame. People need to realize that their sin is shameful. And sometimes if we won't be appealed to out of a good conscience, we need to realize, you know, God really is rejecting me. I am breaking fellowship with God. And when it becomes formal and settled, and serious in someone's mind, sometimes we need that. And I think if we're honest, what are we talking about? We're talking about church discipline. Sometimes just we, we, we just need a public appeal. Turn from this sin. Sometimes we need a private confrontation. Look, you got to get right. But sometimes, and scripture bears this out, we need public pressure where everyone is saying, look, you're not right. You need to get right. And you're acting like an unbeliever. And sometimes when we talk about church discipline, maybe it frightens us, but someone called church discipline the purifying process of corrective discipline. This is really about the honor of God. We can't claim to be a Christian and live in a pattern of sin. That's a lie. If anyone says he knows the Father but lives in darkness, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. John makes it very clear. But think about the opposite. It would be a terrible, terrible thing for a person to claim they're a Christian, but to be enabled to act completely contrary to that and for the church to know about it and to do nothing about it. That person, aren't they? They're on the highway to hell and they need, they need speed bumps put in their way to say, hello. That's what church discipline does. Sometimes we need pursued as we wander into sin. We don't like to think that we would, but that's part of what we covenant together as a church to do. If you wander into sin, we're going to come after you because God loves you and we love you. Sometimes we need to, to have someone just yank our attention and give us God's perspective on our lives. Sometimes we need that firm accountability. It's really part of how Christ pursues and corrects his sheep through his people. That's God shepherding his people. And I would just add this, and we'll, we'll get to this as we get through the letter, but the, the very consistent information in the New Testament about church discipline is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for church membership. So show me a verse in the Bible that talks about church membership. It can't do that. But as Christ everywhere is really talking about putting someone out, putting out an unrepentant person out of the fellowship, that assumes somehow everybody knows who's inside the church, who belongs. It's very consistent throughout scripture. And again, if that sounds intimidating to you, frightening to you, remember that actually truly the most frightening place to live, the most frightening, terrifying life to live is a life that never experiences God's discipline. Because what does that mean? If you don't have discipline, it means you're not a son. It means you're not a Christian. But if you have discipline, that's what Hebrews 12 talks about. You need to endure. God is treating you as a son if he's disciplining you. That means God loves you. That means you need correction. That means you've got problems, but it means God loves you enough to change those. 
which is a wonderful thing. Sin brings challenges, and we must meet them and overcome them by God's grace. That's what the word is. That's what prayer is. That's what fellowship is. These are ways that God ministers grace to his people. But the final aspect of this dynamic that we're seeing played out in this letter is that this process results in spiritual fruit that honors God. And just very quickly, I want to run through these. Rewind in your mind back to the beginning of the letter. What's the first difficulty? They're suffering. They're persevering. But what is Paul so excited about? Their faith and their love for one another is greatly enlarged. And so what is Paul doing? He's telling other churches in the reason, in the region, look at what God is doing in, the, in their midst. And he's rejoicing. This is a proof that you have eternal life. This fruit that they're bearing under persecution is abounding for God's glory. People know God strengthened them. That's what God's grace is doing in them. Everybody looks at them and says, why would you still be a Christian when you're literally being bankrupted for being a Christian? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's God's grace strengthening them to endure persecution. And people know it. People are hearing about Christ because of it. But second, what's the second problem? Saints who mature amid deceit, they testify about God's grace uh, to strengthen them. Excuse me. People who are enduring persecution, it's obvious that they've been changed. Because according to every human explanation, when persecution comes, you, you just leave. Like, why, why would you keep doing that? The whole society is telling you not to do that. Just stop. But when God changes you and you keep going in a path of righteousness, it's clear. God has changed you. But when there's deceit and you hold to the truth, it's evidence that God is strengthening you to do that. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. For evidence of this, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel, that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus. Paul is thanking God because he sees sanctification in the truth. And Christ chose them intending that they would share his glory. It, it, it glorifies Jesus Christ to glorify Christians with himself, to make them like him, to bring them to him, to let them share in his victory together with him. So when error comes and you resist it and you grow, that's a powerful testimony of God leading you into the truth by his strength. That means something to God. That honors, that means something about God, that honors God. But the final challenge that they're meeting by God's grace, that they're bearing fruit, is saints who obey amid unruliness testify about God's grace to steady them. And think about this, just by way of illustration. There's not a one of us that if God was not steadying us by his grace, that we would not go along with the crowd, right? You know the pressure of this, maybe from your school days or something like that. But even in society, when everybody's doing something, that is the easiest time to do it with them. And in this church, we're talking about laziness, okay? So maybe that's not your thing. But just by way of illustration, think of the people of Israel in the wilderness. How many of those hundreds of thousands, maybe over a million people, how many of those people were not complaining we're not grumbling. We're not fearful. How many of them actually did trust God, did consistently obey them, obey him? It's just a handful, right? And certainly that's unbelief in all their hearts, but it's, it's the pressure to do the same thing and to sin. But who were some of the faithful ones? Joshua? Caleb? They did it. You know their names. Moses? They did it by God's grace. There was pressure all around them to sin in that way. There was unruliness. There was disobedience. There was hard-heartedness. Every day for 40 years in the wilderness. And yet they were faithful to their God. And that says something not really about them, but about God who steadied them and strengthened them and kept them faithful to him. So when God helps you to persevere or to mature or to obey when the, when the current of the whole world and even the, maybe the church is flowing against you. That's the grace of God to you. There's no other explanation for that. That honors him. 
So that's a lot. Maybe you can think of this as a map of this letter. But so what? Sometimes we can get so lost in understanding a letter that we forget, okay, this means something to us. Paul wrote this, not just for his own health, not to, you know, waste parchment or something. He wanted to move people. He wanted to make an impact. He wanted to change people. So what? What does this mean? Well, individually, if God ministers grace through the word, read the word. If God wants to give you grace at the throne of grace, pray. If God wants to edify you as you hear truth spoken and fellowship with people who are pursuing Christ's likeness, fellowship with God's people, be here. That's what that means. Serve, repent of sin, cling to doctrine, realize the value of truth and the, the contest for it from all sides. Pray according to God's promises that Christ is coming again. This is how God's promises become precious to us. But all this, of course, is assuming that God's glory is something that you care about. Is God's glory your aim? If you don't care about that, you're not going to do things that will contribute to glorifying God, right? Are you someone committed to the purity of the church for yourself and others? Are you someone with a mindset to grow and understand and to be taught from the scriptures because God's revelation is valuable to you, because you care that God spoke to you. Do you value that? That's the kind of person. Those are the kinds of values of someone who will respond to the message of this letter, that God intends to receive glory from his people as they meet sin's challenges and overcome them by his grace. Christians who are growing Know what God has them here for. God intends to receive glory through the church. And what are we talking about with spiritual fruit? Well, less sin, more endurance, more grace in suffering, greater stability, more tenderness to the word, harder work, maybe. And this is, you know, the, the fruit that the spirit bears is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, faithfulness, patience. We have to reject this vision of the life of a church member that we just kind of hop in the lifeboat and sit and wait for Christ to return and we don't really do anything. We're not really concerned about anybody else. Hanging on for help. Not changing. Because that's, that's not God's vision for the church. What is God's vision? It's for us to be saved, but then to be changed and for him to bring us to really have been witnesses him as people see our lives and glorify him we're to be zealous for good works we're to be little christ's walking around people seeing us and saying wow god has done something in them that's what god intends to do through his people in the church we're witnesses we're ambassadors listen to this from second corinthians 5 therefore if anyone is in christ he is a new creature it's true the old things passed away behold new things have come now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So what is God's grace doing in you? Is he at work? Is he getting glory from you? That's his will for you, for his church. Our church will glorify God as we overcome, by God's grace, the challenges sin presents to us. May God give us grace to deal with our own sin, turn from it, and then to together deal with the effects of sin by resisting them and enduring them, whether that's suffering, whether that's error, whether that's disorder, whatever it is, that God would help us to endure them by his grace for his glory our body here. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the wonderful truth of your word, 
that gives us such clear instruction about how to live in a simple world. We need your help for this and we need your guidance. Help us to heed your guidance. Help us to be tender towards sin and to take your values as our own. Strengthen us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.